Thanks, Amanda. It's good to be back with you tonight. Feels a bit cooler tonight, doesn't it? Somebody's put ice outside, have they? It's sort of coming in under the doors by the feel of it. If you get too cold, um, freeze, I guess. <laughs> yeah, I'm not quite sure what we can do. We'll, we'll stop halfway through, we'll stand and stretch, and, uh, and that might give you a chance to get the circulation going. Okay. Jesus, the teacher. I think if you walk the streets of Perth asking what people knew about Jesus, if anything, I think that the thing that probably would come through most strongly is that Jesus was a teacher, a preacher. That's what he did. He went and taught things. And some of what he taught have phrases that have come into our own sort of language. Turn the other cheek. We, we sort of all know what that means. We never do it, but we know what it means. The Good Samaritan. Most people think of Jesus as not just a teacher, but a good teacher. He taught us how to live. And at the time, Jesus certainly had a big reputation as a teacher. He was someone that people knew it was worth traveling to hear. People traveled from more than 100 kilometers away just to hear Jesus. Now, that might not sound much to you, but when you had to walk, that is a long way, isn't it? That's more than three days' walk. Just to hear a preacher. That's the sort of impression he made on those who heard him. His reputation spread. People wanted to come. But what did he teach? It becomes quite clearly as we start to read through Luke's gospel or any of the gospels, in fact, that what Jesus was doing was gospeling the kingdom. Remember last night we had a brief look at chapter 4, verse 43. Now, tonight we're going to be looking at only Luke's gospel. So if you've got your uncover with you or you've got a Bible with you, the, the passages won't come up on the screen. The references are on your outline, page 11, if you're not there yet. Um, and it'd be terrific if you could come with me to those passages. Some of them, you might think, I, I, I don't have time to get there. Tim's too fast. I'm not good at finding chapter 15, verse 25. Okay, if that's like you, then stick at chapter 6. We'll come back there a couple of times. But if you're okay at being able to balance uh, your notebook on one knee and the Bible on the other and a pen behind your ear, have a go at keeping up with the different passages we look at. In your uh, small group sessions, the Uncover Training, and in your seminars, you're mainly looking at a few passages in Luke and looking at them in more detail. My job is to try to paint the broader picture, to see what Jesus was really on about, what this kingdom is. So we will flip around uh, Luke a bit, but I hope that in the other passages that you're looking at and looking at it in more depth, you'll see that they resonate with what we're saying in these talks. If not, please ask. So Luke chapter 4, verse 43, Jesus says, I must proclaim the good news. I must gospel the kingdom of God to the other towns because that's why I was sent. He's always uh, on about the kingdom of God. That's how he summarizes his own teaching. He broadcasts this momentous news of the kingdom of God. And remember last night, we looked through the Old Testament to see what Jesus might mean. This is, am I banging this or something? Let me just try and change it. Excuse me for a minute. See if that works better. Uh, here was the summary we came up with. It, it sounds long-winded, but I think you've started to understand it. The kingdom of God is a permanent new state of affairs brought about by God's decisive intervention in human history. God coming into our world to do something incisive and decisive through his servant Messiah, who defeats God's enemies and the enemies of his people, 
and brings the blessings of his victory and rule to all his people from all nations. That's what the kingdom is about. That's what Jesus uh, proclaimed, he broadcast. But there's two questions that that raises about the teaching of Jesus. What did he actually teach about the kingdom of God? And what did he teach about how to live in the light of God's kingdom? So what does he teach about the kingdom? What does he teach about us and our behaviour, our living life in the light of the kingdom? They're the two questions that will guide us tonight. So firstly, Jesus' teaching about the kingdom. Jesus teaches that the kingdom is arriving and in fact was here with Jesus. So chapter 4, verse 21 that we looked at last night. He reads from Isaiah uh, 61 in the synagogue at Nazareth and then he sits down, every eye is on him and he says, today, not tomorrow, not, not next year, but today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Or chapter 11, verse 20 is even clearer, I think. Context is that Jesus is being charged publicly that he's doing all his miracles and casting out of demons by the prince of demons, by Beelzebul. And Jesus responds to that. He says, that's a pretty stupid idea, don't you reckon? Do you think uh, Satan would be driving out his own minions? And if your kingdom does that against itself, it, it's had it, hasn't it? There's civil war breaking out. Now, there's a much better explanation. Here it is in verse 20. If I drive out demons by the finger of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. The kingdom of God was real in Jesus and in what he was doing. And no one could deny the reality of what Jesus was doing. Demons were being expelled. It was public. It was unusual. It was new. And Jesus says that means the kingdom of God is here in front of your eyes. You might not recognize it, but this is God intervening. It's arriving, says Jesus, but there's something hidden. I don't know why it's doing this. And secret about the kingdom. In chapter 5, do you remember that, that, that time when people ask him why he and his disciples don't fast? And he says this really cryptic little thing in chapter 5, verse 34. He says, can you make the friends of the bridegroom fast while he's with them? You think, didn't see a bridegroom? What's going on, Jesus? It's cryptic. But I presume you can start to work out what Jesus is saying. He's saying, when you go to a wedding reception and the bride and the bridegroom are there, and in the ancient world, the bridegroom mattered, not the bride. We've got it. We fixed that up, haven't we? It's only the bride that matters for us. But in those days, the bridegroom was the one that mattered. When the bridegroom's there, you eat, don't you? Imagine being at a wedding reception and refusing to eat, fasting. It would be an insult, wouldn't it? It's just totally inappropriate. When the bridegroom's there, you celebrate. You eat it all. You join in the festivities. So who's the bridegroom? Well, it's clearly Jesus. That's what he's saying. But he's saying more than just, I'm the bridegroom. I'm the life of the party. I'm the one that matters. He's saying, and the party is now. The kingdom is here already. There's something to celebrate. Well, come with me to chapter 13. Verse 18. Jesus uses two little parables to describe the kingdom of God. Verse 18, he says, what is the kingdom of God like? What shall I compare it to? It's like a mustard seed, which a man took and planted in his garden. It grew and became a tree, and the birds perched in its branches. Or it's like yeast, verse 21. The woman took, mixed about 60 pounds of flour until it worked all the way through the dough. 
It's like a mustard seed. A mustard seed is a tiny seed. If I had one between my fingers, you can see it on the screen just, can't you? But it grows into a big tree that the birds of the field can, uh, uh, birds of the air can, can nest in. It, it, it can provide shelter for stacks and stacks of birds and people. So what's he saying? Well, he's saying the kingdom of God isn't something that comes like a blitzkrieg, like a, a, a crash bang. That's what people at the time were expecting. When the kingdom comes, it'll just smash everything to pieces. It'll just rock into town, and once it's here, it's a whole new ball game. Jesus says, no, it's like a little mustard seed that's going to grow. There's a long process here. What it will be is not what it is at the moment. It's going to be drawn out. And that's not crash bang, is it? You get hit by a mustard seed, you probably won't even feel it. But Jesus is saying the kingdom of God is like that. Or in chapter 17, people come asking questions. Verse 20, uh, a Pharisee, uh, the Pharisees asked, when the kingdom of God would come? Chapter 17, verse 20. And Jesus replied, the coming of the kingdom of God is not something that can be observed, nor will people say, here it is or there it is, because the kingdom of God is in your midst. Now, some translations have, it's, it's among us, it's in us, and people have thought, Maybe Jesus means it's sort of in our hearts. The kingdom of God is something that doesn't sort of come out there as some objective reality. It's just a personal little thing where you recognise that Jesus is king and you submit to him and in your heart the kingdom of God is born. And so there's little kingdoms of God all over the place, in your heart and your heart and your heart. But that's not what Jesus means. What he's saying is the kingdom of God is real among you, in your presence He's talking about himself. With him, the kingdom of God is present among them. And he talks about people entering the kingdom. So chapter 16, just go back on mine, it's only a couple of pages back. Chapter 16, verse 16. The law and the prophets were proclaimed until John. The Old Testament was proclaimed, it was preached until John the Baptist came. But since his time, the good news of the kingdom of God is being preached. And everyone is forcing their way into it. People are entering it. All sorts of people are entering the kingdom. That is, when Jesus was there, 30 AD, that that time period, the reality was that you could then enter the kingdom of God and he urges people to do it. Now, you can't enter an imaginary thing, can you? Now, if somebody's just designed a house on their computer and it hasn't been built yet, you can't enter the house. But Jesus is saying people are entering the kingdom. It is that real. And as you read through Luke's gospel, you find things happening. People are being forgiven completely, slate wiped clean. People are experiencing salvation. Lives are being changed because of Jesus and what Jesus does. So the kingdom is something that became real in the time of Jesus, back there 2,000 years ago. And yet, there's other things that Jesus says that says the kingdom of God is future. It's still to come. So, chapter 13, look at verses 24 to 30. Jesus has compared it to a mustard seed that grows into a tree. In verse 24, he says, Make every effort to enter through the narrow door, that is, to enter into the kingdom. Because many, I tell you, will try to enter and won't be able to. Once the owner of the house gets up and closes the door, you will stand outside knocking and pleading, Sir, open the the door for us. But he'll answer, I don't know you or where you come from. 
Then you say, we ate and drank with you and you taught in our streets. But he'll reply, I don't know you or where you came from. Away from me, you evildoers. There will be weeping there and gnashing of teeth. When you see Abraham, Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves thrown out. People will come from east and west and north and south, will take their places at the feast in the kingdom of God. There are those who are last who will be first and the first who will be last. So you enter it now and yet this kingdom has a, a feast in the future and you'll see people in the kingdom feasting from east and west, Isaac, Jacob, Abraham. They'll all be there, but some of you who are listening to Jesus who don't enter will be excluded from it. It has that future element. Something will come. You'll see people in the kingdom. Or in chapter 22, Jesus talking to his apostles, chapter 22, verse 28. This is part of the Last Supper. He says, You are those who have stood by me in my trials. I confer on you a kingdom, just as my Father conferred one on me, so that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. When did they do that? They haven't yet, have they? That's a kingdom of the future. In their lifetime on, on the earth, the apostles never sat on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. That aspect of the kingdom is clearly something yet to come, a future kingdom. Or in chapter 20, we won't look it up. Jesus talks about the age to come, and he describes the age to come as the resurrection from the dead, when the shroud of death has been removed. And his disciples are taught by Jesus to wait and hope for that future kingdom. So in chapter 18, verses 1 to 8. Chapter 18, verses 1 to 8. Jesus told them a parable to show them that they should always pray and not give up. Pray for what? Well, it's clear in verse 7 and 8. Will not God bring about justice for his chosen ones who cry out to him day and night? Will he keep putting them off? I tell you, he will see that they get justice and quickly. However, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? What are they to to not give up, hope in? Hoping and praying for the kingdom to come in its final state. Not giving up hope that the Son of Man might come to bring justice to this planet. So do you see that what Jesus says about the kingdom has got this complexity to it. It's not simple or simplistic. In one sense, the kingdom is real already. It exists. You can enter it. The kingdom of God has come. And yet, in another sense, the kingdom of God is future. It will come. And when it comes, it will change everything. How do we hold those together? Well, let me tell you how not to do it. Whenever you find something in the Bible that seems a bit complex and doesn't seem to hold together, maybe it's a bit paradoxical, never reinterpret one side of it by the other side. Never explain away one side by the side that makes more sense to you. Always see how the two hold together. That's what we need to do with the kingdom. Is it present already or is it future? Well, Jesus says it's both. It's present and future. It's now and not yet. So the next slide will show us just a way of trying to picture that. It's an engineer's diagram. If you don't understand it, don't worry. I'll try and explain it. What I'm saying is that when Jesus came the first time, when he walked around Palestine 2,000 years ago, the kingdom of God came into being. God intervened to bring about a new state of affairs. Through Jesus, his king, 
especially through his death, death and resurrection, as we'll see tomorrow. The kingdom was inaugurated. It's real. It's actually there. But the final state of the kingdom is yet to come in the consummation. When Christ returns, he will bring the fullness of the kingdom, the fullness of the blessings that can come through his reign and his victory. And so we, we live now in this overlap of the ages between Jesus' first and second coming, when the kingdom is like that mustard seed growing around us, growing to become a tree in which everyone can find shelter. So I'm suggesting, and I want to suggest not just as a suggestion, but strongly, that that's actually what Jesus is saying. The kingdom is both present and future. It's now and not yet. Now, through church history, one of the the things that has thrown people is when they believe one side of that and not the other, or emphasise one side and underemphasize the other. For example, what if you emphasize that the kingdom of God is real now and you start to underplay the future aspect of it? Well, I'll give you some examples. One of the things you, you do if you do that, you say, well, the kingdom's all about now, everything has come now, then what you expect is that now here we shouldn't have any sickness or death or sin. We should be able to heal all sickness. If people die, we should be able to raise them to life again. We should be able to achieve sinless perfection where none of us sin anymore because the power of God is there for us to save us from all sin. It'll teach us or push the idea that God wants us to be rich now, to be well-fed, to be prosperous, to be successful now. But those are the things that Jesus says are in the future kingdom, not the present kingdom. There are real benefits of his rule in the here and now, But those things are actually for the future when he returns again at the resurrection of the dead. Or another way, if you stop believing in the future, if you just emphasise the now, is what's often called the social gospel. It was prominent in many churches through the 19th century. It's the idea that Jesus isn't going to come back to bring the kingdom. He came to bring it then and, well, he sort of half did the job. We need to finish it. We must create the kind of world that the kingdom is by our own efforts, by building hospitals and and, uh, creating schools, by working for social justice, by caring for the world, through that we will bring the kingdom. Jesus says no. That will come when he returns. That's what he will bring at the end of the age. But what if you do the other thing? What if you emphasise the future but not that it's already started. Well, there's numbers of ways that that's come out. One of them is this idea that Jesus came sort of to bring the kingdom. He would have liked to have brought the kingdom, but, well, people then weren't ready for it. They, they sort of shrugged their shoulders and said to Jesus, no, we, we don't want it. In fact, they killed him because he wanted to bring the kingdom. And so God put the kingdom back on the back shelf for a few years or a thousand years or maybe longer. But one day he'll get the plans back out again And he'll have another go and he'll see whether he can do it this time. And that sort of theology emphasises the place of Israel and Palestine and the Middle East as still being central in the purposes of God instead of Jesus being central. Or people who think that nothing has really changed with Jesus and so as Christians we need to keep the Old Testament laws, the dietary laws and the Sabbath laws because Jesus didn't really bring anything that was new and different. No, it actually makes a difference. 
understanding that the kingdom is both now and not yet, present and future, and seeing how those two things hold together. Jesus teaches us that that is what the kingdom is like. Let's think about Jesus' teaching about living in the light of that kingdom. And here we will turn to chapter 6 and spend a little bit of time there in Luke 6. What's often called the Sermon on the Plain, very similar. In fact, it's probably the same incident as what Matthew records as the Sermon on a Mount. And we'll see even here that this now not yet is there. Have a look at verse 20, 21. Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. When? Well, now, says Jesus. It is yours now. Verse 21, blessed are you who are hungry, who hunger now, for you will be satisfied. See, there's a present and future. Present, the kingdom of God, is something that you poor have already. You sort of own it. It's, you own the benefits of it. That you're experiencing the benefits of it, yet you will be satisfied in the future. Not now. Now you're hungry. In the future you'll be satisfied. The now, not yet. Let's have a bit of a closer look at these, what are often called the Beatitudes. The blessed are the poor. Blessed are the hungry. Blessed are those who weep. What does it mean to be blessed? The English word is a bit confusing for us because for most of us, I think, it conjures up ideas of being blessed by God. When God blesses someone, their life becomes better, they're blessed. But it's actually a completely different word in the original than the idea of being blessed by God. Some translations translate it happy. But that sort of doesn't make sense in verse 21, does it? Happy are those who weep. Now, I I do believe in paradoxes, but that's not a paradox. That's a contradiction. People who are weeping are not happy, are they? It just doesn't work. It's a word that you could translate, and it sort of gets the idea if if you said lucky, except as a Christian, I don't believe in luck. Or you could get the sense of it by saying it's the sort of person you'd be envious of, but we don't believe in envy either, do we? It's the sort of person that when you saw them and saw them in this state, you'd want to run up to them and slap them on the back or shake their hands and say, congratulations, so good to hear. That, that, that captures what this word is about. Blessed are those who are poor. Now, that starts to become a problem, doesn't it? Because who would you run up and congratulate? Well, maybe somebody who's just got 99.95 in their ATAR or somebody who's just won lotto, or who landed the dream job at their graduation, but would you run up to somebody who's starving to death and say, congratulations, so good to hear, I'd love to be in your shoes. That is bizarre, isn't it? That's unbelievable, but look at verse 22, it's even worse, isn't it? Blessed are you when people hate you, when they exclude you and insult you and reject your neighbour's evil because of the Son of Man. That is hard to believe, isn't it? Can you imagine your friends being treated like that? Someone you love, someone in your family. And and as they're being treated like that, you want to go up and congratulate them? You'd want to commiserate, wouldn't you? You'd want to get them out of there if you could. What on earth is Jesus saying? Let's explore a bit more. Who are these people? He calls them the poor, the hungry, the weepers, the persecuted. Now, Jesus isn't talking here about four different groups of people. He's talking about one group of people that you can describe in different ways. 
And verse 22 gives us a really important clue. He says, it's people are blessed when this happens to them because of the Son of Man. That is, because of Jesus. It's not simply that they're poor, they're hungry, they're weeping. They're weeping somehow in a way that's connected to Jesus. In the Old Testament, this language of the poor, the hungry, is about those people who trust in God, who look to God to to come and save them because at the moment their lives are terrible. They're off in exile. They're under oppression. They're suffering because of their loyalty to God, but they still cling on to their hope that one day God will come through. One day God will send his kingdom. One day their king, their Messiah will come and, and rescue them, take them out of that situation. And here he connects it with himself. With, if it happens to them because of me, they're rejected because of the Son of Man. Verse 23, rejoice in that day and leap for joy because great is your reward in heaven. That's who they are. They're the humble poor, the ones hoping in God. The word poor here is not just somebody who's in poverty. It's somebody who is absolutely destitute. They've got nothing whatsoever, no two coins to rub together, nothing that they could ever offer God or bargain with God with. They are absolute beggars. Now, at a physical level, that's not true of most of the people who follow Jesus. The disciples certainly weren't that. Some of them were fishermen. They, they, they came from trade backgrounds. They, they earned a reasonable living. They, they weren't poor like this. They weren't beggars. And yet Jesus is actually classifying them as that because before God, that's what they are. They are beggars. They are destitute. They have nothing whatsoever to offer God. They depend totally, totally on God's kindness to them, on God's rescue. They're longing for God's salvation. They recognize Jesus and they put their hope in him. Whatever happens, they'll stick with him because he's their only hope. Well, that's the who. But the the third question is actually more important, the why. Why do you call those people blessed? Why would you congratulate them? Did you notice that each one of them has a for, a because? Blessed are the poor because yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are those who hunger because, you're, because you will be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep, for you will laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you. Rejoice because great is your reward in heaven. Jesus is not saying there's something inherently good and pleasant about being poor, about weeping, about being persecuted. Now, the reason that you're blessed is because it's all going to change. Yours is the kingdom of God now, and that means in the future you'll be satisfied, totally, fully satisfied. You might be weeping now, but you will laugh with joy. You'll be part of the celebrations where you can't help but just have your heart overflow with that joy and laughter. You're blessed because your reward will be great in heaven. If the kingdom of God is yours now, then one day you'll enjoy all the benefits of the kingdom. Joy and satisfaction to satisfy anybody. Life with a capital L. But of course, if there's no future kingdom, if there's no age to come, then what Jesus is saying here is completely stupid. Rejoice when people persecute you. Rejoice when you're hated by your classmates. Leap for joy when your family excludes you and call you evil. That's that's just dumb. That's ridiculous. Unless what Jesus promises is totally dependable. 
unless there is a kingdom coming and you're already part of it. Only then does it make sense. Only then can you say of somebody who's poor, somebody who's being persecuted, blessed are you. Congratulations. Leap for joy. See, Jesus expects when the kingdom comes in its fullness, there'll be a total reversal. And he's saying that's a rock-solid guarantee. That idea of reversal is, is quite... It's one of the strong themes in Perth. In, in, sorry, in Luke. It's not in Perth, that's for sure. That in the kingdom, everything is reversed. It's turned upside down. Not because human desires will suddenly be forcibly reversed so that suddenly pain becomes nice, but because of the kingdom. It reverses people's destiny. It extends mercy and generosity to those who need it, those who want it but it rejects those who think that this life, this age, is all there is. Verse 24, woe to those who are rich. You've already received your comfort. Woe to you who are well-fed now, for you will go hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you will mourn and weep. Woe to you when everyone speaks well of you, for that is how their ancestors treated the false prophets. Does that freak you out a little bit? Those that you would normally think, ah, they're blessed. They've got the food, they've got the job, they've got the intelligence, people think well of them, they're popular. That's the person I'd want to be like, isn't it? They've got it made. She says, no, woe to you. I wouldn't be caught dead in your shoes. Of course, it's going to change. It's going to be reversed. Those who seek to get it all here and now, instead of putting their hope in Jesus and his kingdom, means even what you've got now, will be lost forever. Sobering words. The future aspect is critical. That's what comes out in this passage. And yet there's other parts of Luke where the the present and the present benefits to those who are God's people, who enter God's kingdom, are given some prominence. So, for example, in chapter 7, the story of the the, the woman who comes in and, remember, she, she... well, she just blubbers all over Jesus. She can't help herself, it seems. And, and as she blubbers, her tears fall on Jesus' feet. And she's sort of embarrassed. How, how do I fix up what, what's happened now? His feet are all getting wet. And so she, in desperate, she gets a hair because she hasn't got a, a towel with her. And, and she tries to dry Jesus' feet. And, and, and it's all just a, an embar- social embarrassment, isn't it? But what Jesus recognises is it's all driven by love. She actually loves Jesus. She, she has an affection and a gratitude towards him that just bubbles out and, and causes her to do this ridiculous sort of stuff. And where does that love come from? It comes because she's been forgiven, already forgiven. And just in case she isn't sure of it, Jesus assures her, your sins have been forgiven in verse 48 of chapter 7. Now, they're just words at one, one level, aren't they? Some words from Jesus, your sins have been forgiven. Nothing changed in her physically. She was still the same person, I presume. In many ways, she still struggled with the same issues in life, whatever they were. We're not told all about her background. But I reckon as the years went on, those words would have reverberated. Those words will have started to eat into her heart and conscience and really make a difference. Now imagine next time she walks down the street of the village and there's Simon the Pharisee looking down on her, whispering about her, Uh, to the other people around him. 
and, and she wants to just go and, and hide and, and, and get away from everybody's gaze. And then the words of Jesus come back. Your sins have been forgiven. She doesn't need to run and hide. Not from the person that matters in the end. Not, not from God. Her sins are forgiven. And when she's old and dying and wondering what's going to happen to her, apprehensive about facing her creator, her maker, the words of Jesus would come back again. Your sins are forgiven. Every last one of them. That makes a difference, doesn't it? In chapter 18, Jesus tells a parable about a Pharisee and a tax collector. Chapter 18, um, it's a little parable. Uh, I'm struggling to find chapter 18. There it is, after 17. Strange that. Chapter 17, verse 9. He, he tells this parable about a, a Pharisee who comes into the temple to pray and he's just full of himself. Thank you, Lord, I'm not like these other people. I'm so good. I do everything right. And then down, not actually coming into the, on the outside, groveling on his hands and knees, is a tax collector, a sinner. He wouldn't even look up to heaven, but he beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And the parable, he doesn't know what happens to that prayer. He throws himself on the mercy of God. He knows he doesn't deserve it. He's just a beggar with nothing to bargain with. But Jesus says, I tell you that that man went home justified before God. His standing with God had totally changed. The kingdom of God was real for him. The decision about his destiny had already been made by his creator, justified, right with me. And Jesus goes on to teach about entering and belonging to the kingdom. So uh, straight after this, verse 15, people were bringing babies to Jesus to place his hands on them. When the disciples saw this, they rebuked them. Babies with Jesus? He's miles too important for babies. Just get them out of here, will you? But Jesus called the children to him and said, let the little children come to me and don't hinder, for, hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly I tell you, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. See what he's saying? The kingdom is something that you can enter now, you can belong to now, you can receive it and receive the blessings. The tax collector had received that, justification. And he says you've got to receive it like a child. What does that mean? Well, in context, it's clear, isn't it? Why were the children being pushed away? Because they weren't important enough for Jesus. They were nobodies. And that's exactly why they get Jesus' attention. The kingdom is open to all. Everyone, no one is too low, too small, too evil, too poor, too dumb. In fact, anybody who is destitute is welcome. And when you're destitute... When, you, when you're welcomed in, it's not because you've earned it. Nobody earns entry into this kingdom. The doors are just flung wide open to anybody who would come and seek the mercy, seek the grace, the forgiveness of God in this kingdom. The kingdom is God's decisive action to rescue and save. Well, it, it's happening. Here's God's King Jesus bringing the benefits of his rule and victory. But if you don't think you need saving, if you're confident in yourself that you're okay, guess what? You're excluded from the kingdom. If you don't want to live under Jesus' rule, you want to rule your own life, you're excluded from the kingdom. It's a kingdom entirely of grace for the poor. 
But I want to turn back now to how you live in that kingdom. So come back to chapter 6. Having talked about the blessings and the woes, Jesus starts to instruct his disciples on how to live, how to behave. He says, do you who are listening, I say, verse 27, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who mistreat you. If someone slaps you on one cheek, turn to him in the other. If someone takes your coat, don't withhold your shirt from them. Now, if somebody says, can I borrow your coat, please? Don't just give them your coat. Give them your shirt, which means you're left with nothing to keep you warm. That would be pretty hard on a night like tonight, wouldn't it? Give to everyone who asks you. If anyone takes what belongs to you, don't demand it back. Do to others as you would have them do to you. Now, many people read this and think, Jesus, that's a pretty noble sentiment, but it's totally impractical. You're just being naive, aren't you? And if you behave like this, what's going to happen? People take advantage of you. In the end, you won't have any clothes to wear. You'll be left, well, cold, I guess. Jesus, this is really just carelessness and irresponsibility, isn't it? How can you be serious you want us to live like this? Well, let's read on, verse 32. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them, don't they? The mafia does that. They love their own. They stick by each other. And, what, uh, and if you do good to those who are good to you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners do that. Yeah, that's, that's how our world works, isn't it? Somebody does you a good turn, you do them a good turn. Or just in case things might go wrong with you, you, are, you do others a good turn, so they'll do you a good turn when it goes wrong for you. That's how the world works. If you lend to those whom you expect repayment, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners, expecting to be repaid in full. They'll only loan if they think they'll get it back. But love your enemies, do good to them, and lend to them without expecting to get anything back. Then your reward will be great. You'll be children of the Most High, because he's kind to the ungrateful and wicked. Be merciful as your Father is merciful. See what he's saying? Of course the world won't live this way, because they don't believe in the kingdom. But if you believe in the kingdom, you can live this way. See, why don't the sinners in verse 35 live this way? Because they don't know God and they have no place in the kingdom. They don't know the generosity of God, that he's generous even to the ungrateful. If you haven't read it yet, there's a great story in Luke where 10 lepers come to Jesus to be healed and Jesus heals all 10 of them. You know what they do straight away? All but one just takes off. They don't even say thanks. Now, did Jesus not heal them because that's the way they're going to respond? No. Only one of them came back and said thanks, but he healed all ten. That's what God is like, isn't he? You know, the rain that came the other day, did it only fall on, the, on Christian farmers' land? No. It fell on the others as well, didn't it? That, that is what God is like. He's indiscriminately generous. If you know what God is like, then be like him. But it's even more than that. Then your reward will be great in the future, in the kingdom. If you know that that's coming, if you know that one day you will be satisfied, you'll be feasting, you'll experience all the generosity of God in full measure, then you can be carefree now, can't you? You can be generous now, not worrying whether you'll get it back again. And if you knew that there was a trust account set up for you so that when you were 25, the day you turned 25, you'd get $5 million. Can you imagine that? probably not a good thing to imagine, but just imagine it anyway. Would you be scrimping and saving every last penny this week? Presumably not. Of course, you know, you don't have to, do you? 
Would you be really stingy? So when friends said, you know, can you lend me five bucks? You'd say, oh, I don't know whether I've got enough. No, even though you haven't got it yet, you know it's coming. You're freed up, you're liberated to be generous, to be careless with what you have. If you know that the kingdom is coming, then you can live this way. This is not just some impractical, naive suggestion on Jesus' part. Loving your enemies is actually the way of the kingdom. Now, if you're carefree about possessions and reputation, does that mean you're carefree about everything? No, there are some things to be serious about. Come to chapter 17. Chapter 17, verse 1. Almost there. Just hang in for a couple more minutes. Jesus said to his disciples, things that cause people to stumble are bound to come. Things that will trip Christians up, maybe even cause them to lose their, their trust in Jesus. They're going to come, but woe to anyone through whom they come. It would be better for them if they were thrown into the sea with a millstone tied around their neck than to cause one of these little ones to stumble. So watch yourselves. If your brother or sister sins against you, rebuke them. If they repent, forgive them. Even if they sin against you seven times in a day. you imagine that? Seven times. They break your plate at breakfast. Sorry. Okay, forgive you. Morning tea, they break your cup. Lunchtime, they break your plate and your cup. Afternoon tea, well, they just, your, your lamington gets thrown in your face. <laughs> Seven times in a whole day, Jesus says, keep forgiving them. If they come back saying, I repent, you must forgive them, even to that. What's he saying? He's saying, you must be very, very serious about the salvation of others. You cause one of them to stumble in their religion to Jesus, it'd be better for you to have a millstone. You know how big, big a millstone is? Sort of half the size of this stage. Tied around your neck and thrown into the sea. Now, that's not a great prospect, is it? I'm sure you're not wanting people, to, your friends to do that to you. Well, you'd be better off having that happen than do this to one of your Christian brothers or sisters. Or let them go on sinning and not rebuke them. Not care enough about them that when they fall into sin, I just let them go. No, rebuke them. Seek to bring them back. Or if they've sinned against you, be willing to forgive them so many times. Why? Because there is a final judgment. The kingdom is coming. There's a consummation in the future. And on that day, all the enemies of Jesus will be condemned to hell. So if you drive one of his people out of his kingdom, that is is so serious. Don't do it. If you allow one of them to drift off and you don't care enough to rebuke them, that is serious. If you're too proud to forgive them, so in a sense they're cast out of Christian fellowship, don't let that happen. Brothers and sisters, let me tell you, I've met people, many people where that's happened. They've been part of a church, part of a Christian community. They've they've done something that they shouldn't have done. But they haven't been forgiven by the community. That's been held against them by one or two or all of them. They felt estranged. They didn't feel welcome there anymore. Even though they repented, they were rejected. They left. And in leaving, they didn't go anywhere else. They left the faith. Jesus says, don't let it happen. There are things to be careless about and there are things to be deadly serious about, especially the people to whom Jesus has opened his kingdom. Don't you dare drive them out. And in chapter 9, he speaks to people who sort of want to come in on the kingdom road with him, but, well, not, not quite sure how serious they are. So chapter 9, verse 58. 
59, sorry. He says to another man, follow me. But he replied, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. Jesus said to him, let the dead bury their own dead. You go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Another said, I'll follow you, Lord. But let me first go back and say goodbye to my family. Jesus replied, no one who puts their hand to the plough and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. See, the reality of the kingdom's arrival is to have a profound effect on our behaviour. It motivates people to do things that under normal circumstances would be, well, wrong to do, to neglect obligations to family and funerals. They're right and proper normally. But the kingdom changes things. There's an urgent demand to live differently, to make difficult choices because the kingdom is real. Jesus was a teacher, a great teacher. And Luke's gospel is fantastic because there's so much of Jesus teaching in it. I don't know whether you've noticed that. I've got what's called a red-letter Bible. Terrible, evil things. Because they put all the words that Jesus says in red, all the other words in black, as if somehow the words Jesus says are more God's word than the other stuff in black, which is heresy. But one of the helpful things is, it shows me as I read through Luke, especially chapters 10 through to 21, 22, that it's almost all the teaching of Jesus. But I hope you've also started to see that as you've read Luke, that passages which aren't teaching, they're things that Jesus does as he heals a paralytic and forgives his sins, are teaching from Jesus as well. All of it is teaching from Jesus. But what you see about the teaching of Jesus is he's not trying to teach morality. He doesn't come with some moral code to teach how to behave in this life, some timeless truths, although there is some stuff about behaviour in it. But it's not just a moral code. Nor is he calling people to some form of social revolution, whether it's armed or pacifist. He doesn't say to people, come on, you can change the world if you stand up for the rights of the oppressed. We can eradicate poverty together. You need to be stewards of of creation and stop all the climate change. Those things might be good to do, but that's not what Jesus was teaching. He doesn't lecture in theology, although he's taught some terrific theology. No, what he taught about was the kingdom of God. His message was all about the kingdom about what God was doing, what Jesus was doing to change this world. That with Jesus, the kingdom was breaking in back then. God's decisive intervention had begun. That already people were experiencing some of those blessings of the kingdom, entering the kingdom. But also that that kingdom had a future, final consummation. God's solution to the problem of the world will be completed then with the resurrection of the dead, the new creation and the final judgment. And Jesus taught us how to live in the light of the kingdom, a life of crazy generosity with our material possessions, unconcerned about our reputation, a life of profound responsibility for each other. But it's only uh, appropriate behaviour because of the kingdom. If the kingdom is not real, it's a stupid way to live. No one could do it or should do it. But if the kingdom is real, It's not stupid at all. In fact, it's the only way to live. To not live that way is stupid. Jesus teaches. My final question for you tonight is, are you listening? Not to what you think he taught, but what he actually taught. In the middle of Luke, there's a terrific little picture that Luke paints, a scene he describes in Luke chapter 10, verse 38. Jesus and disciples were on their way. They came to a village where a woman named Martha opened her home. She had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet listening to what he said, listening 
to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with all the preparations for the meal. She came and said, Lord, come on, tell Mary to come and help me. And Jesus responds, Martha, Martha, you're worried and upset about all sorts of stuff. But few things are needed. In fact, only one. Mary has chosen what is better and it will not be taken away from her. You see that picture? Mary sitting at the feet of Jesus, just listening, hanging off his every word, undivided attention, at his feet, submitting, believing his teaching. And Jesus says, that's the one thing that's essential. Can you picture yourself doing that? A disciple is literally a learner. Someone who will learn from Jesus. Jesus knows much more about the kingdom, about God, about life, about himself than you or I do. He didn't teach because he liked the sound of his own voice. He taught so that we would know the truth about his kingdom. Will you sit at his feet? Will you listen to what he teaches? That's the question I want to leave you with. Jesus is a great teacher. Are we great listeners? Amen.